Good morning once again. If you have your Bibles, please go to John 9. John 9. Today we're going to keep things real simple. Since this is a portion of Scripture that hardly, hardly needs any exposition, any clarifying so we're going to keep it real simple. We're going to do a couple of things. There is mainly when you read this chapter, we're going to go throughout the whole chapter. We're going to journey through it. I'm going to point out a few things to you. But mainly as you read it, uh, two things just jump out. It's blunt. It's the main themes of this chapter is that God's, God is passionate for His glory. God is absolutely passionate for His glory. And it always, His passion for His glory always works itself out for the good of his people. Always. It's one and the same. In his passion, he glorifies himself in the joy of his people in him. And this is just very, it becomes very apparent as you read this chapter of John, um, the ninth chapter of John. And the other one is that this is clearly a picture of our salvation in Christ. Our condition as blind people, we are spiritually blind apart from the work of Christ. And He is the one that opens our eyes. This is not a, a nice, happy ending story about a man who was blind and now sees. Although, it is that. But it's much more than that. As we all know, Scripture is all about Jesus. Every chapter, every book, every line, it's all about Jesus. So if you have it, on your iPod, iPad, or your Bible, if you have it, if you click there or open there already, let's read. We're going to read uh, throughout the chapter, okay? Let's start. John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no work can be done. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the, man, the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sense. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. 
Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and, wa- and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son? who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be, to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, 
your guilt remains. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you that you do great things for your people. You fulfill your promises. And you care about people. Even as we saw yesterday, you need nothing from us. You're not like the pagan gods who have needs. But you, even being as great as you are, you care about us. Out of your perfections, you provide for us and you love us and you have decided to set your affection upon your people. And I praise you for this. We are hopeless without you. And we are, we are desperate without you. So I pray, come. Come. Come in our midst and, and give us the comfort for our afflictions, the rest for our souls. Even as Jesus says, he who is weary, come to me that I will give him rest. So I pray do great things in our hearts today and let none of us leave this place without knowing you better and lo- better and loving you more. And that is a prayer that we, we pray in the holy name of Jesus whom we love. Amen. Amen. So in the beginning, the disciples, I'm just going to journey through the story and I'm going to point out a few things, okay? So they are walking around, it's the Sabbath, um, and they pass probably by the temple. I'm assuming they're still in Jerusalem because the Pool of Siloam is right there. Jesus wasn't going to send a guy miles and miles and miles away. So they most likely still uh, in Jerusalem, close to the temple. They're walking by, and, Jesus, and they see this man, this man who is a beggar. He is um, blind. Then we found out that he was born blind, and he's just there begging. He is an outcast. He does not have a friend. He is considered as someone who is under the punishment of God. In those days, there was a clear, a strong belief that if you have any physical ailment, it's because you are suffering the punishment of God for your sin. Now, there were competing, competing uh, theories. Uh, the, the prevalent one was this one. They had to explain, uh, okay, if, if you are suffering, it is clearly because of your sin. We, your sin. We see that even in the book of Job, with Job's counselors, they knew that Job had hidden sin. They just knew that suffering is directly associated with personal sin. You've you got to be under the punishment of God. Now, when a man is born blind, they have to come up with an explanation because... He was born that way. So there was this theory where even in the womb, the baby was able to sin. The baby was able to sin even in the womb. That was their theological explanation. They did, they did twist a couple of texts, uh, and they got to their explanation. You know, people in trying to deal with the problem of evil, you know, a, a lot of crazy theories uh, come up, this was one of them. There was also the theory of reincarnation. It was very prevalent in India, not as prevalent in Jerusalem, but maybe if you were born this way, it's because you're paying for the sins of another incarnation, another life. So now, it's caught up to you. You need to pay for what you did uh, in, in another life. And there was the theory that if you're suffering, maybe you did something as an adult already or growing up, now God is getting back to you on that. So the disciples look at this guy that is in utter affliction, the guy who's an outcast, the guy who lives a life of pain and loneliness. 
the guy who probably doesn't have a whole lot to eat, probably, I'm not sure if he lives with his parents or anything, but he has a rough life. I mean, he's a beggar. He doesn't have a job. No one would give him a job because he's under God's curse. No one has a relationship with him. You know, he's not very popular. It's not like he gets all the girls. And he's just there. He's just there. He's considered by society an outcast, someone who's under the curse of God. The disciples of Jesus pass by this man with Jesus, and they want Jesus to weigh in on this debate. So their reaction is, Lord, what do you think? Was it him or his parents? Which was another theory. You know, your parents did something now. You've you got to pay for what your parents did, the sins of the fathers uh, being visited uh, on the kids. So now they want Jesus to weigh in on this debate. Now, I know it's not common. It's not normal to come up with an application when three minutes into the text. But this is just so blunt. It's just, I cannot pass by these verses without mentioning it. And, and that is that, I mean, God help us. Sovereign grace, God help us that we become analyzers of people's sufferings and people's afflictions without caring for them, without caring about them. The Holy Spirit has never intended the Bible to be an academic experiment. Why is it that some of us, disciples of Jesus, church people, Bible-believing people, why is it that we tend to use the Bible to analyze people's sufferings? I mean, can you see that the disciples are completely oblivious to this man's suffering? I mean, they have seen Jesus doing outrageous stuff. Jesus has fed thousands. He has walked on water. He stopped storms. Outrageous stuff. They know that Jesus has power to do crazy things. Even healing this man. He healed a man in, in, in chapter 5 that couldn't walk. He said, you know, get your, take your bed, get up and walk. And the man was a paralytic for 38 years. The disciples saw that. It's not like they don't know that Jesus can do something. They know that Jesus has the words of eternal life. So even if Jesus decides not to heal this man physically, heal his eyes, they know that the words of Jesus can bring this man comfort. But their preoccupation is, let's theologize. You know, let's use the, this, this thing as, as a case experiment. Was it him or, or, or his parents? What do you think, Jesus? Let's have a little book club discussion, philosophy discussion. Let's theologize without caring for people's afflictions. God, God forbid that we ever become like that. God's people bring comfort wherever they go. It's confusing if we say that we love the God of comfort, that we know the God of comfort. And we bring no comfort wherever we go. It's confusing to people. They don't get it. It confuses our witness. It damages our witness. Now may the God of all comfort... Who cares? You're not bringing this God of all comfort with anybody. Doesn't James say, you know, if you say, I'll pray for you, you don't do anything about his hunger? That's not true religion. You're not caring about them. God cares about people. And so... Should we? I think the Pharisees, I mean, these discussions, we're not Jesus. We don't mirror Jesus. The Pharisees portray our own hard-heartedness. I mean, understand they're outside of Christ. 
and those of us who are in Christ that claim to know Christ, we're not totally done with, with our sin. The Pharisees are, they represent us in the stories where we resist Jesus. Every day we resist God's grace in our lives. And this looks like an example to us so we can avoid becoming theologizers, philosophers that don't care about people. This man is in utter affliction. He's never had a normal life. Never had a normal life. From the beginning of his life, he's lived in pain. Now, Jesus makes no bones about squashing this issue. He goes straight to the heart of the issue. And he responds by, by saying, you know, this is not about his sin or, or, or his uh, uh, father's sin, his parents' sin. This is about the works of God. He's blind so that God can flex his muscles. He is blind so that God can show off, display his glory, display his works. And God does that on behalf of his people. Throughout the Bible, we see that since the fall, since the fall, it's people running from God and God rescuing them. Then they run from God, God rescues them. They run from God, and on and on and on it goes. God works on behalf of those who wait on him. Which is, he's different from every other God, just in this respect. He doesn't need us. He's not served by human hands. And this is point one that I said that really jumps out as soon as we start reading is that God is passionate for his glory and that always that passion for his glory always works itself out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God wants to do something in the life of this man. In his providence, he has ordained that this man is born blind. And he is not only going to give him a, mount, a Himalaya, a mountaintop experience. Can you imagine the joy of being born, to, being born blind and then blind throughout your whole life? You're an adult man. And then someone touches your eyes and you see again. When pain is deep and that pain is overcome, isn't the joy heightened? Isn't the joy greater? You know, the greater the victory, victory the greater the joy. You know, you overcome a, 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 a cold, a head cold for a couple of days. Like, yeah, yeah, I didn't like it. I, I didn't want to have this cold, you know. But now you get diagnosed with cancer. And, and then, you know, we do chemo and then they take pictures and the scans come back clean, clear. You have no cancer anymore. Now, that's slightly greater than overcoming a cold. Agreed? This guy, he didn't overcome a cold. He, he just overcame. Jesus just res basically restored his life. Can you imagine the joy of this experience? Of washing his face and now he sees. For the first time he sees colors. And what human beings, what human beings look like. And what children look like. And what smiles look like. And dirt. And things that we take for granted in a sunset or sunrise, things that we take for granted every day. I cannot, I try to put myself in this guy's place. I cannot imagine what it is to be blind. I can't fathom what it is to be born blind and live this life. But God did that 
so that in his goodness he would give this guy this mountaintop experience, restore him life, you know, social life, because now he doesn't have to be seen as an outcast. He doesn't have to be avoided. People will have relationships with him. He restored not only his sight, he gave him sight, but not only that, now socially and community-wise, he's accepted, or he should be accepted again. Culturally, he'll be accepted again. It doesn't stop there. Jesus will save his soul. He was born blind so that this life of pain would be a vehicle for the salvation, the eternal salvation of his soul. His sickness, his illness, his blindness had the greatest purpose of all. The glory of God. Or is it the salvation of his soul? Isn't it one and the same? Isn't God being glorified in the salvation of this man's soul? In the vehicle that God used to bring him to Christ was all these years of pain and suffering of emotional affliction, physical affliction, social affliction. Can we really question the God of the universe when we see suffering? Can we really shake our fists up to Him and rebel against Him? What do we know? Even in our own personal lives, if you look back at your own afflictions and you see what God has accomplished in and through them, not only in your life, but in the life of those who are around you. When people suffer well, and you are living life with them, you're doing life with them, you're in the same community, and they go through suffering, loving God, aren't you blessed? Isn't your faith strengthened? Because Jesus is enough. Jesus is better than sight. Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is enough. And if and when we suffer, we can trust Him that His, the suffering that God ordains in our lives, Father Filter, the suffering that God ordains in our lives has a purpose. I'm willing to say that many times we won't even, many times we won't even be able to discern everything that He means to do but we can trust in what He has revealed clearly in His Word. That everything, and everything in the Greek, I looked it up, it means everything. Everything, all things, work for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Amen. So we really have no right whatsoever shaking our fists to God and rebel against him because he knows what he's doing and suffering is a great tool great instrument in the hands of God to bring people to Christ and to grow Christians to grow Christians it's a great testimony when you suffer well by the grace of God now Jesus goes on to, to perform this great miracle he goes on and he performs this great miracle that really hasn't been seen, seen since the beginning of the world. You know, like this man says in, in verse 32, when he's testifying about the works of Jesus, he's like, no one's ever seen this. You know, since the foundation of the world, we haven't heard of anybody opening 
eyes that were born blind. You know, I think this seriously calls into question these, all of these, you know, healing ministries. You know the type that they do crusades all around the world and they emphasize, you know, all these healings uh, without ever preaching the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ, the perfect life of Christ on our behalf. You know, but they emphasize the healings. They say, if you have your sick, bring them to the crusade. You know, we'll bring them to the, to the stage and we'll touch them. You know, this prophet is anointed and he'll be healed. You see a lot of claims of, you know, I had back pain or, you know, I, uh, I had this, I had that. You know, I, have, I had a cold. You know, a, a lot of claims and even some more outrageous claims. But no one can verify this stuff. No one can verify this stuff. Withered hands, like we saw last week in, 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 in Joe's series on, on Luke. I'm, I'm waiting for these, these ministries to produce a case like that, where a man who was a paralytic for 38 years just gets up, his muscles are strength, and he walks away carrying his own bed. Um, I'm waiting for these ministries to produce that kind of miracle. You know, Lazarus died, and, you know, he was in the grave, and, and Jesus comes up and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus come, comes forth. Okay, so I think it's a valid, it's really a valid question. If you claim the name of Jesus and you claim his, his anointing to do these outrageous miracles, you know, why is it that your ministry does not produce the depth of miracles? that Jesus' ministry produced? I think it's a valid question. You know, you know, I don't mean to be nasty or anything, but, you know, got to be like the Bereans and, and, and just see if it's according to Scripture, you know, and, and test the spirits like for the letter of 1 John says. I mean, we have, Christians have to exercise discernment. I think it's a valid question to say, yeah, Jesus produced a certain kind of miracle that we haven't seen. I mean, have you guys seen the people that are paralytics for 38 years get up and walk? I have not. You know, and even if someone, one of these healing ministries, is able to produce a miracle without an explanation, you know, some of this depth, uh, what then? Because in the Bible, miracles, signs and wonders, they're always done in the context of the preaching of the Word, the claims of Christ, the preaching of the gospel. Now, when you use, you know, the blood of Christ, the, the, the expression blood of Christ as some kind of incantation form, that is not preaching the gospel. When you claim the blood of Christ, you know, to get your new car or new house, that is, that, that's not the gospel. Whether he's going to bless you with that or not, that's, that's a different issue. God, God owns everything. He gives whatever he wants to whoever he wants. That, that's a different issue. But if the blood, the expression blood of Christ is only used as an incantation, we're no better than the witches. It's kind of the same thing. When you use certain words that are supposed to have certain power and, and they bring about what you need or want. Uh, it, it's no different than, than what is done in, in the magic um, world. So it, it's just a valid question. Now, Jesus goes on. Now, now they, they don't know what's happening now. There's disagreement among the people. They're asking this man questions. They want to know what's happening. 
And, and some say, some will even say, it is the guy. Some will say, no, it's not. You know, it's one like him. Maybe it's someone, you know, a case like Lily and Celine Dion. You know, it is, it is not. Even, even the kids will say, who's that? You know, we ask them, who's that? Show them Celine Dion. Who's that? They say, it's mommy. You can think, mommy. It's, it's amazing. It's really funny. Um, it's really funny. Even, you know, her own kids were mistaken them. So the people are the same thing. Maybe it's a mistaken ID. You know, it's not the guy. It is the guy. You know, his neighbors are saying, it is the guy. The people who knew him a, a little bit close, a little bit closer will say, it's the guy. Some are like, no, no way. It's not the guy. So there's this agreement. And the guy keeps saying, I am the guy. Apparently no one listens. It became some kind of, he became some kind of spectacle. And the people decide to bring this man to the Pharisees. You know, why do they do that? This is where, when we see the kind of power that the Pharisees had over the population. It's not like they were ordained, you know, the, the, from, from the Levites and the remaining. It, it, it's not. You know, they have the social and cultural power. I mean, the people did not bring this man to the Pharisees because they wanted the Pharisees to punish him. No, they just had a hot, hot issue on their hands. They didn't know what to do with this man because no one's ever heard of such a miracle. So they're trying to figure this out. And when you have a theological issue that you can't figure out, you need to do something, you bring the guy to the experts. Who are the experts? In their mind, it's the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees were very, very good at marketing themselves. Jesus gets on their case when they say, you know, you guys pray with your hands up, you know, at the squares or by the temple in front of people. You got your reward already. This is the reward. They have a certain authority over the people. They have certain glory with the people, right? They're regarded as holy. I mean, these people, these Pharisees, they followed the law very publicly. So everybody knew how much they tithed and how much they prayed and how much, you know, how they kept the Sabbath and this and that. I mean, the simple people, they, they're like, oh, okay, these guys, I guess they're the theologians. They're the experts. They follow the law like nobody else. They're the perfect ones. So they bring the guy to the Pharisees. The Pharisees now have the hot potato in their hand. They can't figure it out because they kind of back, get backed into a corner as well. So uh, they find themselves in, in a very difficult issue because if they deny that Jesus is from God, how is it that he does such a miracle? You know? And if they agree that Jesus is from God, they've got to listen to him. And in verse 13, on verse 13... John, in a kind of a dramatic fashion, John lets us know in the middle of the chapter, you know, end of the first third, I guess, he lets us know that it was the Sabbath. Verse 14. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, it seems like Jesus' favorite sport on Saturday was to go destroy man-made religion. It's like he woke up and said, let's go, boy, let's bust some, let's bust some religionists. Because I really think there's a specific word for this church here. Because between the series on Luke and, and this series on John, I think this is the fourth week that we've been breaking Sabbaths on Sunday. This is the fourth Sunday that we spend time breaking Sabbaths. The Lord is not doing that in vain. 
I really, truly believe that God is talking to us, that he's saying something specific for us. Jesus has been deconstructing this man-made religion for four weeks here, where these guys have added to the word of God, and they are so prisoners of, of their minds and these rules that they have really moved aside from the law. The Sabbath, as we saw last week, was never meant to be a burden. The Gospel of Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, in the account, uh, uh, Jesus says, you know, you guys missed it. The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. The Sabbath is a blessing from God. God intends to love you and bless you through the Sabbath. So you don't have to go wake up seven days a week and worry about making money. God is going to provide for you. This is a day where you rest and worship, enjoy God. And these people, they made so many rules around the Sabbath that I personally really believe, I'm really convinced that it was actually easier to get up and just go to work than to worry sick about keeping all of these rules. I, think, I really think that the Sabbath was made to be a day of rest, and after the Sabbath was done, I think people were more tired than they normally were after, after a, a normal day of work. It's such an emotional stress does get you tired physically. It does me. You know, worrying all day that these Pharisees, they have, you know, their magnifying glasses looking over your shoulder, everything that you do. And if you do anything wrong, you get cast out, you get excommunicated. I honestly think they made it such a burden that it's easier to go to work than, than to, to keep all, these, all, all of these rules that, by the way, are not in, in God's word. They're just, they're just not. The Pharisees had uh, moved away. Now, we see that we hear kind of echoes of Nicodemus in chapter 3 in the Pharisees' discussion, verse 15, 16, 17. Uh, we see the echoes of, of Nicodemus in chapter 3 when he approaches Jesus in the middle of the night and he goes, you know, teacher, we know that God is with you because no one can do the works that you do if God is not with him. So now Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and now within their, their little group that is having this discussion, maybe even Nicodemus is, is saying this once again. Now he's going more public. You know, the Nicodemus of chapter 3 that, that uh, you know, was hide, kind of hiding, kind of in secret, now maybe he's going more public. He certainly has spoken with other members, you know, other Pharisees, because now they're questioning too. You know, they want to presuppose that Jesus is a false prophet. But the question comes up that, you know, why does God give him all this power, you know, to do all this stuff if he's a, if he's a sinner? You know, so there's echoes of, of Nicodemus' question. I think it's a valid question as well. You know, if he's a sinner, why, what is God doing here? You know, and they want to reject Christ, but it's not an easy job. It is not an easy job. They can come up with a solution. Just like the people, now the Pharisees, they, they kind of backed into a corner. So they're like, you know what? Let, let's do something. Let's call their parents. Let's call his parents. Call his parents. So now this, the parents are going to identify them. Positive ID. No, he's not blind. And we're scot-free. We're, we're free. You know, we're home. Parents come over and, and they see, you know, this is our son and he was born blind. We testified to that. And now we see 
the ugly head of man-made religion. It's, it's a beast. It's a monster. It's godless. Man-glorifying religion, we see it breaking up a family, or at least distancing a family, family members from each other. Because this man has never seen his parents. He's looking at his mom's face for the first time. His father's face for the first time. Everything he had hoped for, all the prayers he's made growing up, now finally came through. This mom was cared and prayed for her son. She's not given the chance of celebrating. This man has never seen what a tear looks like. Maybe he's seen a tear for the first time rolling down his mom's face. And they are not given a minute to embrace each other, to celebrate the work of God in their family. Because religious leaders need an answer. They need an answer for their debate. They're not given a chance to celebrate and praise God. And even more than that, this father is not able to stick by the words of his son. Because if he says anything that the Pharisees might take it as implying that Jesus is legit, they get excommunicated. When we read verse 22 that they get cast out if they say that they, they confess Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, being cast out is excommunication from the synagogue, from community. People wouldn't, wouldn't give you a job. They wouldn't hire you. You know, there's a lot of day laborers. You know, people wouldn't hire you with fear of the Pharisees, fear of those who, who run the, the religious gig. You know, if you had your own business, people wouldn't buy stuff from you. They wouldn't buy your grain. You know, people would not hang out. You become a total outcast. You're excommunicated. It's not just, okay, you can come worship here, you know, in the Baptist church. Okay, next Sunday I'll go to the Presbyterian, you know. It's not that. Cast out of the synagogue, it's a total social excommunication. You're done in that community. The Pharisees have that kind of power. They had determined that if anyone says that Jesus is the Messiah, or even implies, they're out. Okay? This father is so afraid of this that he's not even able to stick by the words of his son. He's not even able to defend his son, to say, you know, his testimony is true. Yeah, this man did this. and No, they, they, gotta stay, they, they keep it as kosher as they can. They say, you know what? He is my son. He is born blind. As far as this man, we know nothing, you know, like Pontius Pilate, wash his hands. You know, mom doesn't say anything. Um, for two things that I can think of, one, testimony of women were, was not uh, uh, accepted in court. And, and two, is that this husband, I, I can only imagine him, like, I got this. Please don't say anything. You know, please. And they're not able, but, I mean, the, the son, he sticks by his, by his words. Now, if this is not religious oppression and religionists putting a burden on people, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. If the burden of religion is dividing a family, you know, and they can even be as truthful as they would like to be, I don't know what, I don't know what qualifies as, as a, a, a religious oppression. And this is the reason why 
why Jesus was so rough on these guys. Because they have put a burden on people that they can't even carry. They can't even uh, uh, carry. And, and they go ahead to say that this man is a sinner. Verse 24. Jesus is a sinner. That's their presupposition. That's their starting assumption. That's where they start the consideration of Jesus. In considering Jesus, Jesus the starting point is, he is a sinner. There is no convincing these people. They're not asking because they want to, to check Jesus out and maybe he is the Messiah. Let's do a fair assessment. No, that's not why they're asking. Their starting point is, Jesus is a sinner. I mean, this is obviously point two. The second thing that it's pretty clear that apart from Jesus, we are blind. This is a picture of our spiritual state. They are spiritually blind. And they reject Jesus. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we will not believe Jesus. Jesus can be any and everything, but He is not the Son of God, my only hope for eternal joy and satisfaction. He can be anything, a nice man, a lunatic, a con man. Just a man. He is not the Son of God who took God's punishment on the cross on behalf of all those who just trust in Him for salvation. No, 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 no. Not, not my God, man. This is the spiritual condition, blindness, that Second Corinthians tells us we find ourselves in. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 will say that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they won't see the wonders of the gospel, the marvelous gospel of Jesus Christ. This is every man's condition from birth. I know, you're probably thinking of Jeremiah and, and, and John the Baptist. I, I know. God did something in the womb, but that's not the norm. Okay? Uh, apart from Jesus, we're all here in spiritual blindness. This, is a, this story, this whole chapter, is a picture of our salvation. How we find ourselves completely blind, and Jesus is the one that acts. That acts and, and opens our eyes so that we see Him. So that we see Him. We'll see later on in the chapter that Jesus heard that the guy was cast out, and Jesus found him. Who's doing the finding? You know, as much as we can say, you know, I found God, God is not lost. Okay, he's not in the woods lost waiting for his kids to find him. We're lost. And it's so clear that we see Jesus doing the finding. This man couldn't even look for Jesus because he didn't see. And Jesus did the finding. Jesus decided by his own free will, his own perfections, to heal this man and save his soul. They keep interrogating this man. You know, verses 26 and on, if you're following on the text. They keep interrogating this man. I mean, how many times can they ask the same question? What did he do to you? How did you get your sight back? You know, this is a very common interrogation technique. You know, you keep asking the same question in different angles and watch the story evolve. 
You know, if people are lying, consistencies will just surface. You know, keep asking and asking and asking. People can't keep up. Okay, this guy is under the, 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 the light, the hot light. He's sweating. He's being interrogated. All because these people need a, a, an answer. They need to deny Jesus. They need an answer for, for their debate. And he poses, I think, uh, he starts firing back, and he poses a, a great question. You know, he poses a great question. Let's read, um, I think it's really worth reading, uh, 30 through 33. Okay, look at it. Just pay attention to his, to his reasoning. He's tired of just telling the story. And he starts, he's, he's like, you know what, I can be inconvenient too. The man answered, uh, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Now, this is the Pharisee's theology. God doesn't listen to sinners. So he uses the Pharisee's theology to pose a great question. Now, we know, according to you guys, right? Isn't this your theology? We know that uh, God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God, which is what the Pharisees claim to be, and does his will, which is what the claim of the, claim of the Pharisees, God listens to him. Now, he goes on to say the depth of the miracle when he says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Million dollar question. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See the reasoning? You know, God doesn't listen to sinners. God listened to Jesus. Now, the conclusion, therefore... You know, if this man weren't from, wasn't from God, he could do nothing. Now, these guys are furious. The Pharisees are like, you see when someone is losing an argument, you know, you know when you can tell when they start attacking you and they forget the argument, you know, and they're like, you know what, you're born in sin, you're a sinner. Do you think you can teach us? You're a man born blind, you're under the curse of God. You're simple. You don't have our theological training. You know we're better than you. You're not going to teach us. And isn't that awesome that God has chosen, you know, the, the poor things of this world, the small things of this world, to confound the wise? You know, this man had had a great experience with God, and he's—I don't know—it sounded like pretty solid theology there, pretty solid argumentation. God just did a, a work in his life, and he, he can't shut up. You know, and the Pharisees do not have an answer for his questioning. God doesn't listen to sinners. God listens to him. You figure it out. I don't, I, I, you know, if he weren't from, wasn't from God, God wouldn't listen to him. The Pharisees attack him, not the argument. They don't have an explanation, and they attack this guy. This is part of their religious oppression on the people. The story doesn't end there. I'm so glad that the story doesn't end there. As, it, as I just said, Jesus heard these things and he found the man. He didn't run into this guy. He found him. He went looking for this guy. He heard it. said, you know, I need to talk to this guy. I know, I know what happened. And this is also a picture of our salvation. This is a small picture of what Christian life is. This man is being in the process of being taken in the family of God, the house of God. As God is taking him in, what is man doing to him? 
kicking him out, reviling him. It's the word that the text uses, which is a very harsh word. Reviling. I hate to say it, but it's like reviling means they're treating him as excrement. That's what it means. That's Bible, okay? I'm not... That's what the text says. They reviled him and said, you're a man born in sin. You think you can teach us? As soon as God takes him in, man kicks him out. Isn't that incredible? The enmity of sinful heart, sinful man towards God. And that is a picture of our life. As the more you stand for the truth of the gospel, the more you stand, for, you stand up for God and your passion about His gospel and His namesake and His glory, in general, is, you know, the hatred of man is in the same proportion. Because unregenerate men live in, in, in enmity against God. That is, you know, love for the world is enmity against God, according to the Bible. That's just how it is. It is, again, I think it's the third time I use this expression today, a valid question. I think it's a, a, a question worth asking yourself. You know, if you are liked by the world all the time and you find, you never find opposition it's a fair question. Hey, Lord, um, what am I doing? Am I compromising? Because it's not the norm. The norm is not Jesus being loved and people being crazy about Jesus. The norm is the contrary, the opposite. Okay, in the world we will have tribulation. Um, so it, it's a, sometimes God gives you times of, of rest and everything is fine. You know, but in general, God takes you in, man kicks you out. That's, that's just how it is, and that's how it's presented in our text uh, right here. So Jesus finds him, and Jesus goes straight to his heart, straight to what he believes. And here we see the progression of this man's faith, where he first, in the beginning of the chapter, he refers to Jesus as a man. Who did this to you? A, a man called Jesus, you know, did something in my eye, and... You know, and, and, I, and I see, I watch, and now I see. Then when the Pharisees ask him, what do you say of him? What's your opinion since he healed your eyes, since he opened your eyes? What's your opinion? He goes, oh, he's a prophet. He was a man. A few verses later, he's a prophet. Now Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this guy, I mean, this is, I think, the first time he's seen Jesus' face. I'm pretty sure he recognizes the voice, but he's seeing Jesus' face. Jesus has done enough to have credibility with him. His hands, up, hands down, he's like, where is he? Who is he that I may believe in him? And Jesus, here the text culminates. This is the peak where Jesus looks at him and says, you have seen him. You know what this means to a man who was born blind? Don't miss the importance of this word. Jesus didn't have to use that word. Jesus could have said it. You know, I am. I am the Messiah. Which he goes on to say, I am the Son of Man. But he says, you have seen him. This man's never heard that before. Or even worse, maybe he heard that before as a mocking. People being cruel to him. Because you know, teenage boys can be the worst. 
But that, that, that's besides the point. But he's never experienced that. Jesus says, you have seen him. You have seen the Son of Man. I am the one speaking to you. I am the Son of Man. And this guy is saved. This guy publicly professes that he believes. He says, I believe. And what does the text say that he does? He worships him. I believe, Lord, and he worships Jesus. Now, worshiping, it's possibly, I don't know if he fell on his knees, it's possibly a kiss, which is an act of worship. I don't know how this went down, but he worships him. And Jesus takes the worship, accepts the worship. And, and he says, this is w- what I came for, for judgment. You know, that those who claim to see may be blind, and those who do not see, like this guy that just got saved eternally, just got saved that guys like this that have a contrite heart will be saved and those who claim to see will not now the the statement that that may be kind of cryptic if you keep reading it explains itself when Jesus says you know because the Pharisees he responds to the Pharisees when the Pharisees say are we blind too that's what you're saying that's what you're saying you know you know, it's even worse than that. If you didn't claim to see, that'd be fine. You'd have no guilt. You'd have no sin. But since you claim to see, you claim to be so spiritually enlightened, you claim to know God and you reject the very God you claim to, to know, your guilt remains because you don't accept what God has for you. And this religion does this. You save yourself. Not with this God. Not with this God. So Jesus explains what it means. This is the judgment that I, I come and you reject me. That is the very judgment. That is the very judgment. But also, I save those who do not see. I open, I open their eyes. You know, your guilty remains before a holy God if you think you can do it by yourself. God doesn't need us. He saves us for himself and all by himself. And he saves it because he's a good God. I trust that he has spoken to us this morning. And we're going to sing now. And as we sing, I would like to, I don't know, maybe ask us questions. I include myself in this. But where is it that you act like like these guys, they're disciples of Jesus. They know Jesus. They're familiar with Jesus' power. And they have this thing where, I don't know where they take it from, that they use a man in order utter a suffering as an academic debate, a case experiment, without, I mean, being oblivious to this man's affliction. I mean, have you ever done that? Are you tempted to do that? Are you blind? Is this a blind spot in your life? In your walk with with Christ, are you using your Bible to analyze people's suffering while you're oblivious to their necessity, their need, and, and our role as God's ambassadors to bring 
comfort to affliction? I mean, what jumps out of this text uh, uh, is that God is passionate for his glory and he always works it out for the good of his people. Now, when you stub your toe, do you really believe that truth? Because it, as a theological point, I think it's fairly easy to, to argue from the Bible. But what about in life? Because we all stub our toes. Sometimes Satan turns up the volume. Am I lying? He really turns up the volume of opposition. And what he means for evil, God intends for good. But when you are in the middle of the storm, do you really believe and trust that God is working it all out for your good because he has called you according to his purpose? Remind your soul. I want to encourage you to remind your soul that God is in control. And he uses all of this for his sovereign purpose of your eternal joy. Remember the cold, overcoming a cold or overcoming a cancer? You know, I can guarantee you that the depth of your affliction in this life will be the depth of your joy in the afterlife, in eternity. Even in this life, we can see that when we lose things, we, we learn to appreciate them a lot more. You have a life of pain and God restores you to a life of glory in heaven. Oh, you, you'll be joyful. Remember it. Remember your soul when you're tempted to not trust God in the middle of your trials. Remember it, that God's passion for his glory is your strength, is your joy, is your comfort, even when you don't understand all that God is doing. How about spiritual blindness? Do you walk as if this is a reality in your life? Meaning, have I saved myself? Did I open my eyes? Did I contribute to what Jesus did? Or was I totally blind and Jesus all by himself saved me? Do you walk in, do you walk in the reality of this implication of God completely sovereignly setting his grace upon you? Do you walk in that humility of but by God there go I? Meaning if God doesn't show up today I'm done. Not only 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 5 years ago whenever I got saved, but today I'm just as desperate for his righteousness, for his gospel, for his atoning work on the cross for his resurrection power in my life. I have nothing to offer him. And that affects your evangelism as well in bringing comfort to people to back up your claims of the gospel. Don't give up on people. This man was blind for a whole life. Don't give up on people. You never know. No one is too hard for God. I don't care if they're Jewish and they're 80 and they're atheists. If God, can, if God can save Paul, he can save. He can save. He is mighty to save. Amen? Let's worship in singing. <clears throat>